on. The hell? It's not playing. Not playing my startup music. I can't believe this. Curtis, would you believe this? We have no startup music. I cannot wow. believe this. Uh, this is strange. BTR. I, BTR I no with the government. I, I've got no startup music. I've got no sound. This is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Anyway, you're here listening to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, High Plains Daily News. Oh, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart. Oh, forget about it. You know what I'm going to say. Go to the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. What a way to start off the show. <laughs> with a complete screw up. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> if I was still in the Navy, I would say this is a fine Navy day, except for this um, little technical glitch. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on here. This is crazy. So I don't have to. It's it's my backup computer which is messing up. I don't know why, but it is. But anyway, uh, you're here listening to us live, so <laughs> yeah. we're gonna be rocking yeah. and rolling anyway. Oh man, oh heck with it. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> even if we have well, to sing acapella. Got, <laughs> well, that means I've got no um, dedication music to play either. So ah. It's going to be one of those days, Curtis. Just one of those days. Uh, heck. Well, let's get the show on the road, uh, as they say. Oh, man. Let's push this live. Oh, good Lord. Welcome, everyone that's listening to us up on Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker. <laughs> oh, man. Lord knows. Uh, but anyone that listens to the show knows that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And since we have no dedication music, I'm going to read this all live and then go into our show and bring our guest on after the dedication. Today's dedication is going out to Police Officer Robert Sean Pitts of Terre Haute Police Department, Indiana. His end of watch was Friday, May 4th of 2018. And this is from WFYI.org Associated Press. And it reads, a Western Indiana a Western police officer, Indiana who, was officer killed, who was killed, and I've got an echo, and I've got an echo. What's that? What's that? Uh, someone have a speaker uh, on the back? Not me. Does someone have a Because I'm getting an echo. No, the echo's going. What else can possibly go wrong today? Let's try this once again. A Western Indiana police officer was killed during a shootout with a homicide suspect was honored as a hero who didn't flee from danger. Hundreds of officers from around the country joined other mourners inside Indiana State University's basketball arena at the funeral for Terre Haute officer Robert Pitts. Officials said Pitts, 45, was fatally wounded Friday, May 4th this year when he and other officers approached a suspect, Christopher A. Wolf, 21, who died of a gunshot wound after barricading himself inside an apartment. Colleagues and friends told stories about Pitts as a modest, hardworking officer whose mother wasn't aware of the many department honors he had received, and as a conscientious father to his daughter and two sons. U.S. Senator Joe Donnelly, 
told the mourners, Pitt's death was a gaping wound. This is a blow to the heart. This is one of our sons who gave us everything he had, Donnelly said. When called, he didn't step aside. He said, take me. Let me step up. Let me do the job. Pitts was a 16-year member of the Terre Haute Police Department following six years with the police force in a nearby city of Sullivan, where he lived and was being buried. Pitts was among several officers who arrived at an apartment building that Friday night where police had spotted Wolf, who was suspected of fatally shooting a 26-year-old Robert Olson at a Terre Terre Haute home, according to authorities. Wolf was armed with a handgun and fired at the officers, striking Pitts, court documents said. Wolf also died of a gunshot wound, but officials haven't yet released details about how he was shot. Pitts' death happened two months after the fatal shooting of Boone County Sheriff's Deputy Jacob Pickett as he chased a fleeing man in the central Indiana city of Lebanon. Terre Haute Police Chief John Plass said during Pitts' funeral, that the 27 law enforcement officers have been killed by gunfire this year as of May 4th. Pless said Terre Haute officers were fortunate to live in a community with great support for police, but some people still want to harm officers. We can't even enjoy a meal or fuel our vehicles without wondering if someone is targeting us because of the uniform we wear and what we represent, he said. And from the TribStar.com by Alex Motzit. Terre Haute Police Patrolman Robert Sean Rob Pitts was laid to rest, capping a nearly week-long outpouring of sympathy and support for the fallen officer, his family, and the police department. As the funeral at the Holman Center gave way to the procession and the subsequent graveside service, more than 1,000 police officers, deputies, family members, and friends gathered to say goodbye to Pitts at the Central Ridge Cemetery in Sullivan, Indiana. Hundreds of police cruisers, trucks, and SUVs filed into the cemetery ahead of Pitts' funeral coach, making sure to be in formation before Pitts and his family arrived. A hush fell over the site as the group waited, a stillness finally broken by the distant sound of bagpipes from the combined pipe and drum ensemble that met the coach at the cemetery entrance. Minutes later, standards carried by the walking and colored guards made their way to the site, followed by a thin blue line flag carried by a member of the Boone County Sheriff's Office. The flag was followed by a riderless horse with backward boots, symbolic of a fallen officer, and finally the pipe ensemble and female coach. Members of the Terre Haute Police Department Honor Guard removed Pitt's casket and carried it to its place of final rest. A brief committal was performed before Pitts was honored with a rifle volley from the Indiana State Police Honor Guard. Kevin Getz, a member of the ISP Honor Guard, said, Police funerals never get easier, but a sense of duty and honor help him through the proceedings. To learn of the death of a fellow police officer is a gut punch, Get said. He was a member of our brotherhood. It's somebody who swore to protect this community, and it's difficult at certain times in the service. But you get through it. One of those difficult moments came after the rifle volley when the THPD Honor Guard members flanked Pitts' flag-draped casket 
to perform the flag folding and presentation. As members of the guard lifted and pulled taut the flag, a single piper began playing Amazing Grace, a moment that wet the ground more than the on again and off again rain could ever hope to. The tri-corner flag was presented to THPD Chief John Pless, who then presented the flag and words of encouragement to members of Pitt's family. Other officers were then given the opportunity to pay their respects to Officer Pitts by dropping a white carnation on his. The white carnations are used to represent the purity of service an officer gives his community. Each flower was also flecked with red paint to symbolize the blood sacrifice they make for their community. Get said it's easy for law enforcement from around the state to feel sorrow when they reflect on the sacrifice their fellow officer made but added the sorrow should be shared with the family who is now without a father, brother, and son. This ceremony is temporary for most of us, Get said. His family has to live with this from here on out. When we are done with this detail, I'll strip down my honor guard uniform, clean everything, and go right back to work. I'll go right back to being with my family and going to work. They have to be resigned to the fact that a father, a brother, a child is not coming home. And that's the hardest thing. Knowing for that family, Christmases aren't the same. Holidays, birthdays, nothing is the same. Their world has been turned upside down. I feel that intrinsically, I have a duty to honor this man and honor his family and honor this community. That loss is an important part. Terra Hart lost her officer, and that took a long time to get over. And just when you think you're over it, you lose another one. And that's why I do it. These men and women have sacrificed everything to make their communities feel safe. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Pitts. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women that serve in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into the future. And we say thank you and God bless. And since I do not have audio sound to pipe in for playing Amazing Grace, I ask for a few moments of contemplation and prayer for the family of Officer Pitts. God bless them all. And we're back. You listen to Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, the Radio Chick Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we have our guest in on the line. And if I can just wipe yes, my tears. Yes, we do. And get, uh, Take your time. And get myself a little <laughs> composed. I apologize. It's always hard when I do one of these dedications because it brings back the memories of standing in formation of other fellow law enforcement officers. But let's take a deep breath in and welcome aboard Latresa Jones. Good afternoon, Latresa. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm fabulous. And I might add, you did a fabulous job as well. My husband was a first responder. He's a retired deputy sheriff now. Uh, he came out uh, out of West Palm Beach uh, due to his health wouldn't allow him to continue to go on. 
so it, it was very touching. It was very much so touching, and it's great to hear us give the people that protect us inside this country what they deserve. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I'm it's retired out of NYPD. Yeah, I'm retired of NYPD, and these never really do get easier. But um, it has has no. to be done. It simply does have to be done. We have to remember the men and women out there. That thin blue line between a good, safe society and anarchy. Oh man! But anyway, I want to say thank you to your husband for his <laughs> service too. Oh man! Yes. But uh, you're here. Because you are yes. running uh, for, um, oh, good Lord, my mind just went. U.S. Senate. Senate. It's okay, Ann. I'll help you out. I am a candidate for U.S. Senate here in the great state of Florida. You know, and I was doing my research and reading the, the biography. Matter of fact, I have to apologize. The last time you were supposed to be on, I was up at the hospital up in Charleston. So Curtis and Keller were supposed to do the show in my place. And there was a major technical difficulty. What is it with you? You come on the show and things go wrong. <laughs> no, it's God's plan. See, it's, when it's God's plan, that's the energy I bring to the table. That's all. It's okay. <laughs> That's right. I, I was reading your background, and you know your life could have gone on one or two paths. You could have been, you know, down in the gutter, a, a drug addict, but you've been able to pull yourself forward despite all the diversity that went on in your life. I mean, God is looking out for you, and He is working through you. You have an amazing yeah. past. I, I don't know how much you want to tell the people listening, uh, but it's up on your blog. Uh, Tell us, you know, our listeners, some of the stuff that you, you've well, come through you, you and know why what? you're... Go. I'm sorry? No, I was going to say, just tell the people something about your background and why you chose this time to run for Senate. Well, God told me this was time to run. He told me six years ago. You know, what we have to realize, I know I can only speak for myself. There was a time in my life, especially early in life as a kid, that I did not acknowledge or uh I didn't have the I didn't have the spiritual enlightenment of who my father truly was and that when God has a purpose for your life it's it's chosen. It's ordained regardless of what how it looks, regardless of where you come from, regardless of those things. And in order to serve God's purpose, not even just for me for anybody's life, you have to be able to walk into his truth. And walking into his truth means realizing what your truth was of the past and speaking truth to power. And most people don't realize that, that it has to happen like that. And nobody said it was going to be easy. God never said that. Nobody said we were we were not going to have to fight. Just like we have to stand and fight for our freedom, we have to fight to love God in this country right now. I am in such a great place that I know how to be obedient to God. Yes, you know, I did not grow up poor. Um, my family was very well-to-do, uh, especially in the 60s and the 70s and realistic and money. But the reality of it was money does not identify. Some people may think it identifies success, but for me as a kid, I was a victim of abuse child abuse, um, domestic violence, um, just so many things. And all along the way, God was carrying me, and I didn't realize that. And right now it just kind of makes me 
it brings tears of joy to my heart because I actually saw the light and I realized who God was. That's the most magnificent thing anybody could possibly have in life. Because once you become a warrior for the Lord, nothing stops you. I call myself a beast with wings. Nothing stops you from getting the job done to say, our God is real. And you know what? Anything in this earth that he created, he created for a purpose. He saw this before I was even implanted into my my mother's womb, and I was a product of rape as well. Um, that was hid from me early in life, and I didn't understand it because of the we have lived in a society that we don't like to tell the truth. We like to cover it up and make everybody feel good about all the wrongdoings. And we're still at that point. We're trying to uncover some things, but at the same time, a lot of people are saying, no, 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 let's keep it under the rug. Let's keep it under the rug. But it does us harm. It does us harm as individuals. It does us harm as people. It does us harm as a nation. For me, like I say, as far as the, the, the child abuse, um, domestic violence, and just being in a home, whereas we lived in the best neighborhoods. You know, when I grew up as a kid, we went to private schools. We went to Catholic schools. And that's when I learned these lessons about life, that money can buy a lot of things, whether they're good or bad. Money will get the job done because a lot of people still need it. And we all do at this particular time or in life in general. Um, but for me, as I was going through that journey, I started realizing the thing I was fighting for. I wasn't fighting for my own sanity at one point in life. I was fighting because I had children that I didn't want to expose to that kind of lifestyle. I wanted them to realize that you can be anything that you choose to be, and money does not dictate who you are as a person. So all these journeys, this is why I became an entrepreneur, because of the way I look as far as being a mulatto, you know, I have hazel eyes, I have the the, the fine hair. And in my culture as a black American, you know, they put so much emphasis on light-skinned and dark-skinned that these are things that are haunting us to this day in our society because of the way they think. So I dealt with them. Um, I dealt with going and getting a job, and not because I was qualified to do the job, but because I looked a certain kind of way. And when I finally got tired of the harassment and things of that nature, that's what pushed me into the um, being an entrepreneur. Plus, that's all I knew as far as growing up as a kid, because that's what my first job was in the family's business, because before they even called it flipping homes, that's what my family did. They bought properties. They rehabbed them. My grandfather rented them out, and he had, you know, he only had a fourth-grade education, but he was what we would call a visionary. But at the same time, they had all this business sense, but they were still very abusive people. They were abusive to the women in the family. They were abusive to the kids. Uh, started digging for my own truth. I got to the point where I realized how many things are generational in a lot of families, especially abuse. And those are things people still don't like to talk about. They don't like to talk about that there was a time in our society where it was okay for the men to touch the women, uh, be the first to touch a woman in, in a family, whether it's the sister, whether it's the kids or whomever it was. But these have been practices over the years that's been, shh, don't tell anybody, Ann. It's been taboo. So then all of a sudden you have somebody that becomes an adult such as myself that says, you know what? I have to break out of this because this is driving me crazy mentally. Um, 
and it does because what you try to do is you try to protect your family and the people that actually should be protecting you. Now, you're a kid that's taking on a, an adult responsibility of protecting grown people, and that's what we've done. We've allowed the kids to, you know, we've taught them to lie. We've taught them to be shameful of the truth, which became, uh, which is a catch-22. Um, and as I walk in this journey of life, that's what I continue to speak. I speak God's truth, and people can read about me because I, I'm very, you know, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not ashamed of any place I've been in this life, anything I've done, because that's who makes that's what makes us who we are. I'm not perfect, but God knows I'm trying to walk as close to Jesus as I possibly can and do the work that needs to be done. Well, you know, you talk about generational um, dysfunctional families, and unfortunately, you know, our society just propagates that. Look at the scam that's coming out now with Planned Parenthood now, where they were protecting this very thing. And this yeah. is something that you experienced firsthand. Mhm, 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 mm-hmm. and that's exactly it. That is exactly it. And even with Planned just to let you know, Planned Parenthood, the abortions were used in our culture as contraceptives. When I, I can remember, I've had abortions, and I had abortions because I had a family that could pay to play per se. You know, I have a, a stepfather that's raping me. I'm a kid. So I go and I, I can have these back alley abortions in these places that did it um, just because you can afford to do it without realizing how you are giving our souls to the devil. You are allowed, You are literally taking your children's soul and you're giving it to the devil. And when you talk about Planned Parenthood, that's why I go so hard against them. You know, they want to take 14-year-old kids and give them the right to make a decision to have an abortion. How do you protect these kids when you do things like that? How do you educate these kids? You don't because our society says it's okay and it's the woman's choice. No, it's not your choice to to kill a baby. It is not your choice, nor is it Planned Parenthood, nor should we be funded anything that has to do with it, anything. Man. I really hope that you make it up to the Senate. You know, we need someone like you. I was looking, um, your website happens to be your name, LatresaJones.com. There's a link up on the show page so that people catch the podcast later on. They can just click on it and go directly to your campaign page as well as your blog page. It's going up in the uh, chat room on Blog Talk Radio so people can check it out also over there. But up there, I was looking at your issues, and uh, man, can can you run for Set it here and replace Lindsey Graham, please. We'll just have to run against Lindsey Graham. Well, and you know, I am not the establishment girl. So when you're not the establishment, that means I'm not in the circle of you know of, of the money people. I'm the person. I'm the one that's saying, you know what? No, this country is for us. We are the people that you're supposed to serve when we put you in a position. You, you, you're, the, you're not supposed to tell us what you're going to do. We're supposed to tell you what we want you to do, what we need you to do, and as long as it's within the Constitution in this country and the guidelines of our Bible, those are the things that matter. And until, you know what, I've been standing up by myself all my life. At least I thought I was by myself. And it's time to stand up now. If I don't fight for these kids' future, because they actually don't know what America 
looked like or what a good America could possibly look like with checks and balances that actually work. You know, what I love is now that the- more and more conservatives from the from minority uh, areas, such as black and Hispanic, are coming out as conservative. They're finally realizing mm-hmm. that the Democratic Party has failed them. Go ahead, Curtis. I'm going to say, now that you, you're in the race, um, could you give us a little description of your platform and what you think of um, the Second Amendment and sanctuary cities and medical marijuana and things like that? And please don't take this personal. I go hard in the paint anyway, because that's just how I'm cut at this point in life. But, um, you know, Second Amendment, you know what, our Second Amendment right, people don't realize, as a black American, you also have to remember, I am a grandchild of a slave. My grandmother was born February 1st of 1888, and she died when Obama was elected to office. And I want to be honest with you. You told mother woman that her stories, this is what my grandmother would tell me about her stories as far as the Hanks and things of that nature. Do you know we had guns in our houses all the time? The NRA actually bought guns to the slaves to protect themselves, to protect themselves. And do you think I'm going to allow that it's okay for them to start saying, oh, nope, we, we, we feel like we you can't protect yourself uh, better yet. You're not able to make a conscious decision as an adult on what type of gun you should purchase and what type of gun you should not purchase. How absurd is that? It's absurd. Our Second Amendment rights, and I'll sum it up, I'm pro-life, pro-gun, and pro-God, and that is the reality of it because as far as our gun, our Second Amendment rights, when they start taking the guns away, we have nothing. It happened during slavery, and it happened during the Holocaust. And people take these minor things for granted, the very smallest things, and they don't realize one little thing, nine times out of ten, escalates into something major. But this is not a little thing. This is a major thing. Nobody has the right to amend our constitutional rights as citizens in this country. Nobody does. Sanctuary city. I don't know how, uh, you know, sometimes I get a little potty mouth like Peter is. Is that okay, Ann? (laughs) That's all right. Okay, well, let me tell you something. A sanctuary city. All these kids are locked up for breaking crimes in this country called America. And you're going to let all these damn illegal people come over here, better yet, and you want us to take care of them? That's almost like inviting a crook into your house and say, rob me, steal from me, rape my, my, you know, well, in this case, rape my husband and my kids, and it's okay. That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable under any circumstances. And something the mainstream media is not talking about, most black people don't support sanctuary cities. Look at Chicago. Chicago has a Republican governor, and everybody else might be Democrats, but how can you have a sanctuary state up there and all that crime going on in Chicago? That's about illegals bringing guns into the community, Gangs are bringing guns into the community along with drugs coming into the community. It has to stop, and it won't stop until we start doing some common sense shit, you know, some stuff that makes sense. For example, you have to, you can't eat an elephant, a whole elephant at one time. It takes one bite at a time. And eliminating these sanctuary cities, that gives us a start. And this DACA, 
Yo, doctor, under no circumstances should we be negotiating for people to be here illegally. No circumstances. Do what everybody else has to do. You come here legally. These doors weren't open for, you know, this is America. Of course, we allow everybody to come here, but there's a process. Due process has to take place, and we are becoming more and more lawless in America. We can't have that because that means there's nobody to protect anybody. We cannot have that. What was your next question? I'm going to it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think he asked about medical marijuana. Yeah. Medical marijuana. I'm going to tell you what concerns me about medical marijuana. I think that because I talk to a lot of people with cancer, I think because we have such an issue with big pharmaceutical companies in this country and the lobbyists, the medical marijuana will give people alternatives to their medication. It concerns me when we're fighting a larger opioid crisis that's coming from pharmacists now and out from the doctor's office. You're talking about legal prescriptions. At least give people alternatives. The thing about marijuana is that it's actually listed as a herb in the Bible. It's actually in the first chapter of Genesis. And I'm proud to believe people, adults, should be able to make a decision on what form of medication that they should choose. I am concerned about the regulation in medical marijuana because in some states, for example, you have Michigan and Colorado, I don't see any regulation as far as the quantity that people are allowed to have or people understanding that medical marijuana, marijuana comes in two forms. You can have an upper or you can have a downer. And these things have to be um, when we prescribe medical marijuana, these things need to be addressed because you don't want a person that's a dep- you know that's depressed all the time to get a prescription to for a downer. Uh, and I believe one is called indica, called sativa, um, and they need to be you know I think the regulation is going to have to come in there, not necessarily regulation, but it will allow us to doors, and I think it will take away from the pharmaceutical companies, because one thing I don't hear anybody talking about is big pharmaceutical companies. They are major in this country. They are they are bigger than guns as far as I'm concerned. They are all over the place, and the thing about it is legal, a legal prescription. Wow. You, you right now, you've got a fan in the U.K. <laughs> He's posting up on uh, YouTube that he goes, you go, girl. <laughs> well, tell them I can't take any money from out of the country. <laughs> so don't donate. <laughs> now, I was, I was looking at your issues, and um, we have a problem with Common Core. I have a big problem with Common Core. Uh, yep. Would you be working in the Senate to finally get the federal government out of our school system and to stop Common Core? We need to get them out of cop. Common Core needs to be eliminated. I believe in charter schools, and I'm going to tell you why I push for charter schools. What people don't realize with charter schools, you can take these schools and make them to be something fantastic that caters to the kids in the community, like the ASEs or or special education. You can critique a charter school to meet the needs of the kids and the parents in the community. And that's what people are not looking at. They're thinking, oh, it's vegetables, and she just doesn't know this, no, no, this. Charter schools will help us to educate our kids at the level we feel they should be 
uh, educated. I, the government does not need to tell my kids how to have, have sex. They should not be teaching my kids about their body parts. They shouldn't be doing any of those things because it's none of their business. They need to be running the government like we pay them to do. And I'll add another well, one since one I'm things- at it here. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I was going to say what I like is because we have charter schools here and in South Carolina, uh, this one school that is really highly popular has the parents must donate 20 hours a month to the school, which lowers the cost, and it has the parent directly involved in the education. Yes. Yes, agreed. My grandkids attend charter schools, and that's one of the very reasons they wear uniforms. And, yes, the parents have to don't they have to volunteer their time. And you know what's so ironic to me about that whole deal? Me having children, our kids are grown adults now. Uh, I was a PTA president. If their school, and it was a public school, if they lacked something, we raised the money to make sure that we were able to get what those kids needed as well. And the parent involvement is crucial to the growth of the kid. Don't people realize that the early years of life is what matters? This is what builds foundations in children. It's not when they're already adults. It's when they're in the womb where God put them from the time of conception. And conception is when a man and a woman, when you conceive, that's, that, that's when life begins. Wow, huge amen to that. You know, the, the school system, you notice there's no school shootings in a private or charter school. It's all happening in the public school system. That, that, that's something to contemplate, guys out there. If you've got kids in school, uh, where are they safer? In a private charter school, which does get public funding, so you're not paying a tuition. The, the, your tax dollars are paying for that charter school. It makes more sense, doesn't it? It does, and guess what else? You can put up. Um, oh, God, metal detectors at the entrance of those schools. And guess what? Since we're going here, we might as well go here because I like going to places other people don't like going. Let's go here. You're talking about most of these shootings, these school shootings are taking place in white communities, Caucasian communities. Nobody's talking about white-on-white crime, and this is a reality because that's what that is. That is white-on-white crime that's occurring. Yes, it's a sad thing, but at the same time, I've noticed that if you go into a lot of the inner cities, the schools are horrible, but they have the metal detectors there. If you have metal detectors at a charter school, we need to be in control of our kids' education, period, what they're doing, what they're seeing, what's being put into their heads. And guess what else a charter school allows you to do? It allows the board to choose the teachers that are going to work in that school system. That is a good thing. It's about parent accountability. It's about everybody taking responsibility. Because I have a major issue about these gun uh, right, especially down here in Florida, in the state that I'm running in. Now, all of a sudden, most of those kids, you're talking about kids living in $3 million homes. These are kids that was bullied with other boy down there in Parkland. And I have some friends that's down there as well. Um, I stay very vocal because, as I told them, a year before that, and a year before that, in Miami-Dade County, Martin Luther King Day Parade, 17 people got shot. Nobody said a word, an absolute word about those 17 people getting shot with the same kind of rifle, same kind of rifle, and nobody says anything. 
And then we say, oh, well, we have all these issues. Yeah, we have issues because we have to realize everybody's lives matter and all our children should matter. We should not be taking these stances and allowing these kids because they're not mentally developed completely. They don't they, they even have pubic hair good, let alone making decisions on what we need to have as adults and what is acceptable as far as what we can purchase and what is not acceptable. And that discourages me a great deal. You know, we're not talking about discipline either. I read, I saw an interview with this kid, Hall, and he's sitting there talking to his mother like, like she was his child. Had he been my child? Oh, yeah. It would be going down because it would, it would be some broom sticking going on over there. Talk to you, it would. Deal is we have to get back to parent accountability. They have to be responsible for their children and their children's actions. Exactly. Exactly. Go ahead, Curtis. All right. You're a U.S. senator now. Um, How would you handle lobbyists? That seemed to be a big problem in Washington, D.C. For me right now, if I'm a U.S. senator right now, I'm going to tell you exactly how I handle them. I want to hear shit you got to say because you didn't help me on my campaign. You didn't stand around for the things that was right. And as a matter of fact, we have, why do we have 64 lobbyists in education in the state of Florida? Why do we have lobbyists in our system? The lobbyists are the middlemen that take the money out. And we have to have some type of reform with the lobbyists. No, I'm not going for it. I'm going to tell you, Mr. Bennett, what my plan is. Once I get to the United States Senate, it's to help the president push his agenda because he has an agenda in place, and it needs to be pushed. He needs people that's going to stand by him, especially if it's common-sense agendas in the best interest of the people. We don't have to have lobbyists. We've allowed the lobbyists to come into play to be the communicator, per se, for the big corporations, because that's pretty much so what they are. Well, it, it, unfortunately, right. the lobbyists also write the legisla- legislation. It's not the legislator. The lobbyists write it. They hand it to the senator or representative and say, hey, push this for us. And that's one of the things that has got to stop. Legislation must yes. come from the legislator, not from a lobbyist. Correct. Correct. Because the lobbyist is going to write the literature that's going to benefit the organization that pays them. And it has to be about, you know what, we can take those jobs and we can hire administrative assistants. We can hire too many other people to come in and to do that work, very much so cost-effective. But not only that, that was something we have to address. We have legislation that's being pushed, and nobody's reading these bills. How can you write something and don't read the product? I'm just trying to, can somebody help me with that? You mean like Nancy Pelosi? We got to pass the bill to see what's in it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly it. How do we? You know, these are things that are just like they're ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's no common sense. It doesn't take a genius to sit down and figure things out in reference to um to if this matters or if it does not matter. Should it be in these bills? And I wish I had the exact bill name, but Bill Clinton. When Bill Clinton was in office, and we can say a whole lot about uh, old Pimp and Bill, um, and that is for sure. But when he was in office, he was the one that allowed them to put all these additional clauses in one bill opposed to simplifying them. They should be simple. We should be able, as 
as servants, we should be able to read everything and be able to present it to our constituents to say, this is what this is. But when you start complicating things and making it so detailed with so many other things, then you're losing us. And that's how they're winning because they are putting what they want in these bills that are not even directly uh, pertaining to the bill itself. And that's crazy. Unfortunately, this is what they're doing. And unless we see a complete change in Congress, uh, I don't see it stopping in the near future, unfortunately, which is why people in Florida have to vote for you to get you into Congress, into uh, the Senate, I mean. Um, I love yes. your stance also on Obozocare, or as I call it, Obozocare. Uh, it, it, the way I was reading your thing, it was as if you had read the blog I had posted back in October of 2009 about the simple wow. steps on what to do in place of Obamacare, tort reform, across state lines, uh, mm-hmm. simple things like this, letting the free market work, uh, which is what mm-hmm. you talk about in your issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the free market, and you know what, and I was going to comment on that earlier as far as the government has to get out of health care. They need to stay in their lane, and I don't think they know what their lane is at this particular point. It, you know, during the last administration, they thought that they had the right to, to dictate everything. They need to stay in their lane, and we need to get the government out of health care, and you're absolutely right. And, yes, I do agree with the whole heart. This is how you build industry in America. This is how small businesses are developed as well. These are opportunities that small business people have to grow and live the American dream. Yeah, we should be able to I'm sorry, I was just going to follow up on the health care. We should be able to to determine what we want in our plan. You know, I don't need uh, a plan for a prostate exam. Sorry, right. I'm not. I'm not that way. And my husband doesn't <laughs> need a gynecological uh, products in his plan. We should be able to pick and choose the same way we do with our TV cable. We choose what service we want. We choose what yeah. level of service. But at this, now with Obamacare, you have just one choice in most states, and that's it. And then you get penalized yep. if you don't have any insurance. And we should choose yep. whether or not we do want insurance. And why can't mm-hmm. we work it out with the doctors? that we pay as we go. There are some doctors that will do pro bono work if you are poor. Uh, there are doctors mm-hmm. that will turn around and say, well, let's work at a payment plan, which mm-hmm. my husband and I are currently doing that with our dentist. I mean, he came home mm-hmm. just a little while ago with the bill, and I just did, almost fell on the floor fainting. But this doctor is working <laughs> out a payment plan. This is the way it used to be, people. Everyone did yeah. have health care. It, it was depending upon how they worked it out with their doctor. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. have ruined the system. Yes, they have ruined the system. Now, and remember, I was originally born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. And you remember back then, when you came out of school, you had 401k plans. You can go to work for General Motors, Chrysler, Ford, the post office. They were already making $15 an hour. Everybody had health care because we were able to choose, and it never was an issue. It became an issue when the government got involved is when it became a disaster. Exactly. Exactly. Because when I worked for my companies, uh, I, I had insurance, American Express, great, beautiful plan. Uh, when I worked for the law firm, my 
And the lawyer loved the work I did so well, he gave me a Cadillac insurance plan. The employers used it to lure good employees. But in today, yes. mandatory health care, how do you lure a good employee when you're mandated to provide this for all your employees? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the carrot mm-hmm. and the stick. <laughs> this is how America works. <laughs> Curtis, I know I cut yeah. you off with a question. Go ahead. <laughs> well, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but uh, Trump, when he became president, he overturned just about every executive order that Obama had put into place. He loosened regulations on the business world. He's made it possible for billions of dollars to return to the United States from overseas. And the stock market has, like, gone, you know, buck wild, you know, like it's on steroids. Mm -hmm. Yet, we got Obama out there saying that he set Trump up with a good economy. What are your thoughts on that? Is this guy delusional or what? You said this is not a PG-rated show, right? Sort of names are family Family-oriented. Okay. Family-oriented. All right. You know what? It's almost like an abuser. If somebody is abused, has abused you, do they actually want you to know? Do they want the people around them to know the truth? They don't. Abusers never want the people to know the truth. They will stay behind a lie until the death of them. Until they leave this earth, they will stay behind that lie. And the issue with Obama is that, and I'm just going to tell you, once again, as a black American, he deceived us. He deceived this country. As far as I'm concerned, the best thing he could do is exit the United States of America. What he has done in this country, he crippled the progress that my ancestors made in this country of America. He crippled them. Not only did he do that, do you know what he did? He also turned around and said he made same-sex marriage legal in the United States of America. He went against our God. Nothing that man could possibly say, if he's a man, nothing he can possibly say can change how my thoughts are about him. He set us up is what he's done. And most people are not just him. They're delusional with him, his followers. They call us a lot of names, you know, because, we, um, because we're free thinkers. But Obama has done America such an injustice. And the country that he's from, Africa, his father's from, wouldn't even allow it to take place there. And he comes here and he destroys us in that manner. Anything he has to say, I cannot respect. Do I think, I felt like at the time, okay, maybe he's going to do something all right. You know what I'm saying? Maybe he's going to do some good for the people. He's done absolutely nothing but destroy America. He has destroyed America, and he's no different than an abuser to me. And trust me, I can look at him, smell him from a very far distance, but he has not done us any good. And for him to continue to take a stand and have a conversation in a political arena, I disrespect that. And that's why I feel as though it's so crucial for conservatives to take a stand to say, you know what, anybody that wants something better for this country, we chose Donald Trump because he was not a politician. We chose Donald Trump because he was a man that is good in business. 
she knows how business works in America, and it's showing in our economy right now. I I talk to people all the time, and I'll say, five years ago, where were you at? And most of them say we were struggling. We were this or we were that. And, yes, that's exactly what most people were. We were struggling in this country. We were literally struggling in this country. And, no, he's not done us any good. And it just it upsets me, you know. And, I, and I'll tell you this. My grandmother was still alive when Obama was in office. And whether y'all like the word or not, she said, what the new – uh, uh, she says, what's the um, the end guy doing in the White House? Her her <laughs> spirit was never good about him. She never said anything good about him. But for us, her family members, to, for her to see something like that, that was more of a, um, a loyalty thing than it was anything else. But to stand there, and I know the number of grandmamas that he has destroyed mentally that probably won't even vote anymore. That's what people don't realize. When he did what he did, when you destroy somebody's soul, that's how you break them down. You morally break them down, and that's what he did. He broke them down. You challenge their God. You challenge their belief systems. You challenge all our belief systems, and you brought foolishness into our country, foolishness. And, no, I don't respect that. And do I stand with our president? Yes, I do. Will I stand with him in 2020? Yes, I will. Because he is the man that we need, and I believe God put him there. Well, now I'm going to ask you now. You are a senator. You become a senator, uh, and mm-hmm. you're now faced with something like this Paris Peace Accord or the Kyoto Treaty, where it was never presented to the Senate for an advice and consent. It was never brought before the Senate to vote on, and yet we were forced to adhere to it. Uh, what do you say to something in that situation? Well, if it does not follow due process, I'm standing down. If it's not following our due process in this country, we have to stand down. We have to stand with due process. How it, how it, The laws of the land are the laws of the land, and we can't be force-fed those things. And we have to sit down and have a conversation with our president to find out the best way to strategize within the Constitution and the guidelines of the law to handle this because I feel like it's too many that just go along to get along. I'm not a go-along-to-get-along girl. Now, at this point in life, if it's not working for Americans, we don't need it. If we have not had enough time to to um, vet it, we don't need it. We have to take stands that our hard stands, yeah, maybe piss a lot of people off, to be done. It has to be done. Well, we're getting some questions coming up, and one of them wanted to know who we were speaking with, and I want to reintroduce you that it's Latresa Jones. She's running for Senate in the great state of Florida, and uh, you can check her out because this one question is coming up on the Facebook video. So Latresa Jones is up on Facebook, so check her out there. There also will be a link on the show page. I'm going to put that up later. I have it on my Blog Talk Radio show page, which I have to now put up into uh, Facebook. And your webpage is your name, LatresaJones.com. So (laughs) she said that you are absolutely awesome. So, Stacey, thank you for the comment. We appreciate it. (laughs) And, by the way, our our Canadian friend in the other chat room, Cal, has said that you happen to be a very pretty lady. So (laughs) I've got got three different chat rooms going on at the same time. (laughs) Talk about multitasking. (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you. Uh, you 
yeah, you have a very strong stance on uh, pro-family and children. And a matter of fact, uh, Stacy did make a comment that her grandmother said that we were going towards communism and had nothing to do with Obama's color. Uh, this is true. We're looking at our society that is leaning yeah. more democracy than republic, and from democracy then goes into socialism and communism and total tyranny. So what we're seeing now with what Trump is doing, we're starting to see it tilt back more towards a constitutional republic, but we've got a long way to go. Uh, what would okay. you do in the Senate to help bring us back to the republic? That's well, a big question. That's I think that we have to start enabling the American citizens more to bring us back to the republic so people can appreciate actually actually is going on in this country and they have to understand how America was built. The history of this country says a lot, and I would make sure that we're pushing towards that small businesses, um, giving, and another thing, putting God back into our schools, giving parents their rights back as parents as well. These are things that will continue to build the strength of the republic of this country. But I'll tell you something that we might need to put out here, Ann, and that is in 2020, we hear a lot of talk about 2020. The concern I have with 2020 is that if we, the baby boomers, don't get it right right now, we're going to have a major problem of going towards uh, socialism in 2020 because you will have the millennials will outnumber the baby boomers. That frightens me because they are not mature to make these decisions that they're making in reference to an easy life, Social Security, needing help, being dependent upon the government. And we have to provide, me as a senator, I would want to push bills that's going to provide, give them their, their power back because they don't realize this is what has happened. Your power has been taken away from you. And once we have to start giving the American people their power back to be American citizens, to operate, just like you were, uh, C.S. Bennett was saying in reference to uh, entrepreneurship. Don't you know small businesses build economies and make communities better? Small businesses do these things. We have to continue to push towards entrepreneurship as well. I'll tell you something else I would like to uh, evaluate a little bit more, the cost of living. I talk to so many people, and I go on a lot of businesses, and I see people that say, I can't afford to retire because the cost of living is so expensive. We have to make sure that we are making the correct adjustments and we're controlling the taxes that senior citizens are paying. Nobody's talking about those things. Those things matter when you have to go, you know, especially if you're in a state where the average home, say even to rent is $3,000 a month, but you're paying your people what, 7 and $8. That means they have to work three jobs just to be able to live. Um, and those are things as far as the bills that I would push in reference to how do we stabilize the economy and health care. You know, health care, that still goes back to health care. We have to have some control over these big corporations and what they're pushing into our communities and give the power, once again, back to the people. And I think that's how we do that. We do that by affordable living, uh, affordable pharmaceuticals. You know, we can control those things with the pharmaceutical companies if they were not, the lobbyists were not in uh, the big boys' pockets as often as they are. Those are a lot of things that we don't have control over as far as being a U.S. Senate, creating laws that protect. And another one, 
creating laws, we have more drug dealers in jail than we do pedophiles. The pedophiles are free, and the people selling the small amounts of marijuana are in jail. We have to start giving people their rights back that deserve their rights and pay their dues to society, and we have to have prison reform. These are things that are going to continue to bring the fathers back into the homes because I do believe God says a union is between a man and a woman. We have to build the structure of the family. By building the structure of the family, we have to give the, the motivation, the power back to the family, the mother and the father, uh, as far as discipline, we have to also know there's a fine line between discipline and abuse. But these are things, when you have a strong family, you have a strong community. You have a strong community, we have a strong United States of America. Well, you know, it's ironic because prior to LBJ's great experiment, which brought us uh, welfare, the welfare class and the dependency class, the black community had that very same thing. They were... They yep. owned more small businesses than the white community on average. Yep. They had more of an entrepreneurship spirit, more of a moral, hardcore value spirit. And once we did the great experiment and government replaced God, then we saw the breakdown of the family. And it, it, mm-hmm. now when you see the marriage rate so low, and I have to say, the Supreme Court finally got something right yesterday with this ruling on the uh, wedding cake, the baker. They said, wait a minute, you're infringing on his freedom of religion. And I I finally said, and I was surprised. I thought it was going to be like a 5-4 decision. Instead, it was 7-2, which means two progressives went on the side of moral value and the Constitution. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And just to chime in on that, how many times do you walk into a place of business and it says, we have the right not to serve you? How many times? A lot of times. There's always a sign that says we have a right to reject any customer, and that is, that's exactly they do. They have a right to do that. You're a business. You're a private business. This is your business, and you have that right to not serve people. I think the Supreme Court did a wonderful job, and hopefully we'll see them standing with the Constitution, standing with God, and standing with moving this country forward because of a decision like that. And don't forget our president. He's not acknowledging Gay Pride Day. I am not a believer of same-sex marriage. That is, you know, that is the gates of hell being open once again, and I guess I'm pretty strong on that. That is it's not of God. It's not right. It's not right, and we are telling these kids anything goes. And, Ann, think about this. Let's not leave out this fight we've been having about these kids being able to choose their own sex. So if a boy want to go into a girl's bathroom because he feel like dressing up like a girl today, he can do that. And they're telling us in public schools that you're violating his right. Foolishness. Foolishness. <laughs> well, Latresa, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm sorry that we didn't get the other show on with you, uh, but when's your <laughs> primary coming up in Florida? Well, actually, I'll be just in the general election on November the 6th. I do believe that it is. It'll be November the 6th. And please have people go and they they can uh, ask questions and support me as well. I am running like Lisa Murkowski. I don't know if you're familiar with Lisa Murkowski out of, um, she's a senator out of Alaska. She ran as a write-in. She ran and she won as a write-in. Nobody ever talks about that. 
You see, I have to talk about this really quick. I had to use a different strategy because to go through a primary with a billionaire, especially a billionaire with the largest uh, Medicaid fraud in America's history, fine in America's history of a billion dollars, that that was something I'm not willing to do. I'm not going to lose. I'm going to win this by the people. If the people are ready for change, change will happen. It will only happen because that's the only way it can be done. Nothing is going to change well, until we, the people, change it. Latresa, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, people can go and check out your website, latresajones.com, and give you support there. Thank you, and God bless for the hard work you're doing. And God bless you as well. You guys, Mr. Bennett, you know I love you to pieces. I'll talk with you guys soon and keep up the good work. <laughs> All right. Get the message out. Take care. Thank you <laughs> All for right. uh, coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, Latresa Jones. Latrice Jones, thank you so much. We got our next uh, guest up in the uh, in the studio here. Want to welcome aboard. She's running for governor here in the state of South Carolina, Catherine Templeton. Good afternoon, Catherine. How are you today? Wonderful. Good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, the last time you were supposed to be on, it was a hellacious storm and it messed up your flights because you were announced your new running mate. Uh, matter of fact, uh, this is is this the first year we have. The running mate with you running on the ticket, right? It was last year was right. the last election was where it was separate. Lieutenant governor and governor ran on separate tickets. This year is the first year that you're united on the same ticket. And you took a really an outside guy. You just threw the playbook away and took someone new. Who's your running mate? I did, and my running mate is Walt Wilkins. He has an incredible record. You know, there is a personal story that um that is really phenomenal. He's a selfless Christian. He and his wife, Danielle, um, they are, they are some of the best people that I know to start with. So we know where their values come from, but Walt's record as a real crime and corruption czar is unparalleled in this, in this state. He was the U S attorney under George W. Um, after nine 11, he is currently the solicitor in the upstate who has put more criminals in jail than any other solicitor. He has taken on extremist um, Islamic terrorists at our joint base, Charleston. He has taken on the Bloods and the Crips and MS-13 and the gang violence. He has deported more illegal immigrants than anyone in the history of South Carolina. Um, and he's, he has prosecuted corrupt politicians, local politicians, and, and you know, in his own backyard. So, I mean, this is a this is a gentleman who has conservative values, has an incredible record, and could have been the successful um, gubernatorial candidate in and of itself. So I'm really thrilled that he is um, he's agreed to join me. That he's excited about you know what I stand for and what we want to do for the state of South Carolina. And our primary, we've got the uh, absentee voting going on right now. Our primary is next Tuesday. And today there's eight primaries going all out throughout the United States, including New Jersey and California. I'll be interested to see what happens in California because that's a crazy state. Uh, but here in <laughs> South Carolina, your primary date is going to be uh, next Tuesday. And I'm looking forward to it. I told you, I already have my gown for your inauguration. And I'm not joking. I'm, I'm serious, I do. And I'm so honored. I, I, I look so forward to it. I mean, your support is, is phenomenal. And it, it is so valuable because, you know, we when we don't know someone, we ask our friends. And, and we, it's relationships. And, and we trust who our friends trust. 
and you are so well respected and um and your views are are so well respected that that's an amazing endorsement for me to have um you know going 7 days into this you know, I've, you know and I've never run before so this whole this whole uh endorsement game and and all these things you're supposed to do um I've not known you know what politicians are supposed to do which is probably why we've been so successful I've run this like a business yeah. Well, we got a caller up in the studio. He's a former co-host of mine out of the state of Michigan, and bring along Cool Mike. Mikey, how are you doing today? Doing great, Annie. Uh, great show. I I really like the uh, U.S. Senate candidate, and I have a couple questions for uh, um, Catherine, if she doesn't mind, uh, in her race for governor. Here in Michigan, uh, we also have a gubernatorial race. Some of the hot-button issues um, for each state tend to be uh, – the same. And uh, the first one I have is Sharia courts. Are you in favor of Sharia law courts in South Carolina? You know, Mikey, one of the things that I did when I worked for Governor Haley is we actually banned sanctuary cities in South Carolina. We're one of six states in the nation that did that back when um, nobody was really thinking about it or looking at it. And we were concerned about, um, about what was, how our state was going to be affected um, by Sharia, but what we were uh, we were concerned about the safety of our citizens. We were concerned about a number of things, and I think what's important about about the timing is that this was before um, before it became a popular topic of discussion for the mainstream media. We did this when we were looking out for South Carolinians. To, you know, we had had their backs when they didn't even know what was and wasn't happening to them. Um, so, you know, the, it's, I, I'm, I'm proud of, I'm proud of what we did there. And, and uh, there, of course, now there can always be more to your point. Um, there can always be more ways to, to take care of the, and protect the citizens of the state and protect our constitution, our religious freedoms. But, um, I feel good about the trajectory we're on. Uh, I take that as a no. <laughs> I think so, Mike. <laughs> I think All right, so. just making sure. Um, uh, well, I, I just I, I I like the answer. I just didn't get a yes or no answer on there. How um, constitutional carry, which is another one, which obviously that's hugely under attack as we watch those uh, idiots march this morning. How, how do you um, how do you feel about the constitutional carry? Well, and I, I want to, first of all, I'm 100% supportive of constitutional carry. Um, the, you know, there, there's a, you don't have, you don't have our same broadcast network up there in Michigan, but we actually um, have a campaign commercial where I am talking about the 38 my granddaddy gave me and taught me how to shoot. And, um, and, you know, I shot snakes under the trailer that I was living in while I was rotating shifts. I mean, the only way, and you've heard this over and over, the only way to, um, to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And I've had a concealed weapons permit since um, I worked for Governor Haley. Now, that said, I only have it because it's the law. I think it's ridiculous that we have to pay the government a fee for what is already our constitutional right to bear arms and our God-given right to defend ourselves. Um, but actually, our state law enforcement division suggested I go get a concealed weapon permit because I had fired so many people in our bloated state government and rattled so many cages that they wanted me to, be, wanted me to protect myself. 
and I still carry today because I'm not finished doing the right thing. <laughs> you know, I like that. Looking at your picture, <laughs> blue is definitely your color. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, uh, finally, my, la- my last questions. Oftentimes, uh, I, I ask every candidate this, especially candidates why help. Oftentimes, we elect candidates, and uh, let's let's say uh, um, I don't know what day you'd be sworn in, but here in Michigan, it's January first. And then uh, one of the fat cat comes around and puts his arm around you and says, "Catherine, let me show you how we do things around here." Next thing you know, that person you hope to elect is a complete opposite of who we elected. Yep. No, nope. I've seen it Can all the time. Can we say you, Leatherman? Yeah. <laughs> Can we say so you, Leatherman? Here's a little bit about. <laughs> A little bit about me, Mikey, the um, never run before. I don't know anybody, any favors. And this campaign started, you know, Governor Haley, we, we lost our governor to the United Nations, and I'm so glad that she's there. She's the only thing I can think of most days that's good about the United Nations. And and so we got a fill-in governor, and the fill-in governor is the epitome of the corrupt good old boy system. I mean, the in fact, the political consultants who have been on his payroll for the last 30 years have been indicted in the last six months. Um, one's pled guilty. And, and let me tell you, everybody's going to talk about corruption. Everybody's going to say, no, it won't happen to me when I get there. I was there for four years working for Governor Haley while we actually daily fought those corrupt good old boys. And when I left working for Governor Haley, I was asked to help um, at the Port of Charleston. They said, you know, Catherine, Come do for us what you did in government, because I took a buzzsaw to government. Cut employees, cut um, spending, cut regulation. And so I went to the port, and, and Mikey, you will be proud of me. I got fired after five days, excuse me, five weeks at the port. <laughs> because on a Thursday, I released corrupt state contracts of the Quins. These are those political consultants that I was talking about that our governor has been working with forever. I, I released their corrupt state contracts to the public, to the media on Thursday. On Monday, I was called and told not to come back. That was a quarter of a million dollar job that I lost as a result of doing the right thing, and I will do it again. I have participated with the FBI and the state law enforcement division in their investigation, and I am proud that they are indicted. So any fat cat dumb enough to put his arm around me in January is clearly someone who has not paid attention um, to my record or my actions. And here's well, the other and, thing that I think you know, is important. I'll never run for another office again either. I'm out. This is I am here to serve. I have the experience and the and the values to do it. And I'm in and then I'm out. I, I, if I'd wanted to go to Washington, I would have gone when President Trump offered me a job. Well, just so you know, uh, I like everything I heard. Uh, you now are going to get under attack by the liberals because I donated to your campaign, and they're going to say outsiders are funding your campaign. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They... <laughs> yeah. Look, but, we're making uh, all the right people mad. I, I really liked your website. As you were talking, I was uh, I was kind of vet- vetting. And uh, let me tell you something. Uh, Annie's had a lot of great uh, people as guests and this, when I was co-hosting, but uh, i got to say you're not only the most conservative, but you are the most beautiful, too. Boy, we uh, <laughs> we definitely got to get you in the in the capital, and I wish you the best. You know, we need we need more more people like you. Oh, wait, before I mute myself, I'll stay on. If you're elected, you're still going to be carrying. I see this picture here. You holding the gun. <laughs> That's Absolutely. gonna make those liberals. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Absolutely. They don't like it a bit. <laughs> Not even a little bit. But thank you. Thank you for that very much. That's very kind. Well, you know, the, we need to support our candidates. It's that simple. The Democrats can raise money coast to coast, and we need to do the same. If we only can spend 10 bucks, spend 10 bucks. If we can give 100 give 100 If we can do a little bit better, we can do better. But we need to do the same thing they do. We're, we're, we're harder workers. We're more, and we're more organized. So, and we work too. So that, that helps. We just need to support more. So I'm going to mute myself and uh, turn, turn it over to Annie. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> Thanks, much, Mike. Catherine. Uh, Catherine. Yes, sir. I just want to let Catherine know that the the link to your webpage happens to be your name, CatherineChapleton.com, and people can click on it by just looking at the descriptions. So when the people listen to the podcast later on, they can click on it while they're listening and go to your campaign. I've been putting it up also in the chat room too. So go ahead, Curtis. That's great. Before the Seventeenth Amendment, senators were appointed by the states to represent the state's interests. Since then, they're elected. As governor, would it be hard or easy or whatever for you to work with someone like Lindsey Graham? You know, um, I'm going to work with the people who the people of South Carolina send to serve and send to represent them. Um, A lot of times it's, it's popular for uh, governors or uh, other politicians to go and run against and pick their friends. And in fact, there's a there's an opponent in this race who says that he's going to spend his time financing, targeting, and um, and running against you know all these different legislators. I appreciate that, but I'd really rather just have term limits. And I'd like to re- I'd like to respect the people who send their their um, representatives to work with me, and I work with them. And um, finally, I'd like to have a governor who spends their time governing instead of politicking, you know, and actually taking care of our pocketbooks, our our jobs, our families. So I'll tell you this. I'm going to work with the legislature in South Carolina. I'm going to work with our senators and our representatives in Congress. But I think this is a really important story, and I guess it goes along with that rattlesnake commercial. Um, When I was in Columbia working with Governor Haley, standing beside her and fighting all this good old boy waste. There was a legislator who um, he and I disagreed on something and he's a good conservative. He's a, um, he's a former police officer, um, avid outdoorsman and hunter, plain spoken, but we just didn't agree. And we were adults about it. You didn't hear it on the Facebook and you didn't hear it on the Twitter and there were press conferences about it. We, we disagreed as adults and professionals. We didn't, we didn't like each other's positions. Next thing I know, this gentleman is on um, is in front of his constituents in the media saying, "I know Catherine Templeton, and if she says we're safe, we are safe, and you know, move on, you know, it, let, let's go." So I called him and I said, "Mr. Chairman, he's now the chairman of ethics. Mr. Chairman, I didn't know you liked me." He said, "What, darling? I like you. At least you rattle for you strike, and you know that that is." <laughs> probably the highest compliment I have gotten in this whole um, political thing. People just want to know where you stand. And we all, all day, every day, work with people that we may or may not agree with, may or may not even like, but we have to get it done. And if the people of South Carolina send Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, Trey Gowdy, you know, whoever, whoever they send for us to work with, I'm going to spend my time making sure that we're spending every day 
making the lives of South Carolinians better and getting government out of their way. And you have a great platform, which is up on your website. And besides term limits, you're saying you will take no salary. The same thing Trump has said, I'm taking no salary. That's right. You don't, you don't enter into service for the Tay-Tech. And it's a symbol to the state of South Carolina and all the citizens who are working so hard every day that I'm doing this for them. I'm doing this for service. And it's not about me. It's certainly not about the money. And so, you know, I'll donate my paycheck or not take it, whatever they'll let me do. But um, it, it goes along with the fact that I can't be bought. You know, I mean, I, I, I just, I have, I have had a great path been plucked out of the public sector, uh, excuse me, the private sector. Governor Haley, you know, asked me to come fight labor unions and bring jobs to South Carolina, and um, she brought me to the dance. If she had not left, if she had not, if I had not had those four years of on-the-job training to be the governor, I wouldn't be doing this now. But I did, and I have, and I do. And so that's not something that you ask to get paid for. That's what you do if you're a good South Carolinian and you have three children. I want my three children to have the same opportunities and prosperity that I did growing up. Well, you're talking about education, and we're trying to get the federal government out of the education business, uh, bring it down to the state and local level. Uh, What would you be doing as governor here? You know, I I totally agree with that. Home rule is very important, and I come from a family of teachers. We have to let the teachers teach calling. And get all the rest of the stuff off of them, all of the bureaucracy and, you know, the discipline, no discipline. You can't, you know, they don't let them do anything with these disruptive children. And we have to let the leaders lead. And the principles is what I'm talking about there. I have been all over the state of South Carolina, and I have talked to more rooms of parents than one can imagine. And if they have a good principal, they have a good school. If they have a bad principal, they have a bad school. And we have to stop micromanaging from the state level how we are handling our children's education. In South Carolina, we have a real problem because, you know, we build soldiers in South Carolina. And one of the top things that BRAC looks at when they decide what base to close is our education. We're 50th. We have 60,000 open jobs in South Carolina, and we're making it easier to sit on the couch and collect welfare than to take one of those jobs. But what's worse than that is the kids who do want to work, we're not preparing them for real life and to support themselves. I mean, bring shop class back, for goodness sakes. You know, there, there's, there's plenty, plenty of money, too much money. There's plenty of money in the government of South Carolina, but it's not being spent well. There's 16000 for children, for child, to educate a child, and we're not getting it to the kids. We're paying the bloated bureaucrats in these Schools that have a thousand kids and they have a full complement of a district office. I mean, it's ridiculous what we're doing. So I'm supportive of, um, very supportive. In fact, worked um, worked on it when I worked with Governor Haley. We all did having the Secretary of Education appointed by the Governor of South Carolina, so that the full weight of the executive branch and the bully pulpit of the governor and all of the resources of the governor can get behind our fixing our education system. Well, I got a question because here in the Beaufort County, I don't know if you're aware of it, we have our school board under FBI investigation. Uh, We have a school superintendent that came out of North Carolina. He is now resigning as of January. Um, 
there have been controversy after controversy in our school board. And with this upcoming uh, election, we're hoping to change the school board. Is there a way to make these school boards more accountable and transparent? I think that there is. I mean, I think that goes back to the the importance of the local level. And I I, I tell you what, this is this is um, not going to sound like a good politician, but I told a, a gentleman who was who wanted to contribute to the campaign because he's so passionate about education. Um, I said, don't contribute to me. You need to contribute to the school board races. We have to have good parents, good business leaders, good people in charge of our school boards, our, department, our school education boards, because that really is the governing body at the end of the day. In South Carolina, as you well know, there's not a sort of a, a next step or a, a court of last resort or, or an appeal if you have a bad school board. Now, in, in Beaufort County, they went so far that the law was broken or allegedly broken. And so that, but there, there are plenty of school boards where Things are happening that aren't not criminal, or at least there's no law in the books calling it criminal. And I think it would be a wonderful opportunity for our new Secretary of Education or our next Secretary of Education under my administration to actually create some type of appeals process so that we can start learning and calling out any type of um, failure of transparency. I mean, in Charleston County, where my kids go to school, millions of dollars went missing, millions. And everybody kind of shrugged their shoulders and looked at each other and said, well, I don't know who was in charge of that. So, I mean, you know, when you have when you have volunteers, you've got to make sure they're held accountable. And it's funny because our school board, their their credit card that the school district was using, somehow or other was used at Victoria's Secrets. And I don't see how that no. was education. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, that's a really hard one to justify. <laughs> Mm. Well, talking about ethics committee, there, there's also that trial that's going on uh, with the gentleman that were running that consulting company. As a matter of fact, I believe one state senator, Corzine, uh, pleaded guilty in court yesterday to ethics violations. The ethic laws in this state are a joke. What are we going to do to clean this up and get more transparency and honesty? Well, you know, I, I talk about term limits, but how about this? This is how you really term limit them. What if we pass one sentence, not study it, not have another, you know, committee get together to write a report that sits on a shelf, one sentence. If we elect you to protect our money, you cannot have any of it for yourself or your family. How about that? Because right now in South Carolina, you know, you said Senator Leatherman earlier, Senator Leatherman is the most powerful man in the state of South Carolina because he holds the purse strings. He's been there the longest. Or maybe maybe not the longest, but pretty close. He has he's amassed all this power, so he decides how much money goes to which project. He then decides the he's over the procurement process. So who gets those contracts? Son, a son-in-law, until very recently, sat on the Department of Transportation Commission, and their family, the Leatherman family that we know of, got forty million dollars in road contracts because they just happened to own a cement um, factory or cement plant, and his son-in-law works for a sign company, private sign company, and all those blue signs on the road in South Carolina that tell you where the gas station and the restaurant and everything, those signs are privately um, paid for by state contracts that his son-in-law has, $12 million over the past four years. So 
I think we could term limit them if we just stopped letting them take our money from us. And and here's I tell you what, one concern I have about this investigation. Well, it's not one concern; it's a huge concern. You know, our governor Henry McMaster has been a part of that family for decades. Um, Senator Corson and he are, are very close. Um, you know, he's been on Richard Quinn's, or he's paid Richard Quinn. Been you know, Quinn's been on his payroll for decades. My biggest concern is whether or not Henry McMaster is a target of the investigation or could be. And if that's the case, and we elect him in, you know, seven days or or in a runoff, and then he ends up getting indicted, we have handed our Republican red state conservative over to the Democrats. And that liberal, what is it, the blue tsunami they keep talking about? Terrifying. It's one of the reasons I'm running. Wow. Man, you know, you've got my support. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, one of the other problems we have, the, the scandal with this base load uh, with our uh, SCG um, and what's the other one? Mm-hmm. I For some reason, I have Anna a, a, a and, and Cindy Cooper. Brain... Yeah, I can never remember that name. It's like a huge brain fart here. <laughs> <laughs> Here we've been paying for these two nuclear power plants that are not going to be built, uh, and I did an estimate of how much money that our household gave out ever since the Space Load Act went into into uh, existence, and it's something like $6,500. Yet oh my the God. company, Old Dominion, that's looking to, uh, looking to buy the, the uh, consumer, get them to uh, get the contract to purchase a scanner, uh, is going to only offer 1000 and people don't realize because this is on their electric bill. They pay the electric bill. They don't pay attention to all the little different fees on there. They don't realize how much money we have already handed over to this boondoggle. And they've taken that's our ex- money and given us nothing in return. That's exactly right. You know, nobody has been stronger or louder against this than I have. And it's very complex. So SCANA or SCNG, those are the same. That's actually a private company full of lobbyists, it's a monopoly, they went and lobbied our legislature. And they said to our legislature, um, we want you to pass this law. This law allowed that company, SCANA, SCNG, whichever one you want to call it, South Carolina Electric and Gas, that law allowed them to take a 10.5% profit off of everything, no matter what they delivered. Lawyers' fees, bank interest, and they took that money and they paid their fat cat executives, and they took that money, and they gave out um, – they're still giving out dividends to their stockholders, actually, still today, right now. And then there is the other utility. That is Santee Cooper, and it is owned by the state. And what, they, what the legislature did is they took – they bonded Santee Cooper. They took our treasury, our money, our tax dollars, and they, they hooked it on to a private company who lobbied for this. Here's the bad part. Here's the worst part. They're still doing it. Governor McMaster has had not one but two legislative sessions to change the law and stop SCENG from taking our money. On average, it's like thirty dollars a month from everybody. They they didn't. They, they're still doing it. And Dominion coming in, you know, Dominion or any other company, it doesn't matter, coming in and saying, hey, we want to buy SCNG, but you know what they, I understand they've said is we want to buy it, but only if the legislature doesn't change things. We want to buy it so we can keep taking. 
from the citizens and ratepayers of South Carolina. And you're right. Said, you know, oh, let's show you this this shiny little carrot. We're going to give you a thousand dollars back. Guess what? That's so that they can continue to take from us, and it'll be five thousand dollars that they will have taken from us before it's all said and done. It is a horrible, horrible deal for the ratepayers of South Carolina. And I'm not sure where our governor is on this or why he isn't educating people. You know, Dominion has put a lot of money into marketing and saying, you know, look, we're great and let us take, you know, let us buy this company and we'll give you $1,000. I think it's incumbent on our governor and the leaders of our state to say, whoa, 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 no, 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 you're going to cost us $5,000. No, sir. So as your governor, one of my top priorities in January, as soon as I get there, will be to lead, to actually lead with the legislature and give them cover and explain to the people of South Carolina that they're being taken advantage of and change this Baseload Review Act so that we get our money back and that we they stop taking it from us. Uh, it's the hugest scam, and they're not going to lower the rates at all. There's no intention to lower the rates, and we've got one of the highest electric rates in the country. That's right. We sure do, and it's so, it, it is all to do with this nuclear boondoggle, all to do. You know, Santee Cooper was, is a quasi-state agency. It was doing pretty well um, before this boondoggle. In fact, um, you know, if I had been the governor when it was doing well, you know, we, we might have been able to sell it because government shouldn't be doing all the things that it's, you know, trying to do. But right now, it would saddle us with $5.5 billion of debt. I can't even tell you how much money that is per person in South Carolina. That's outrageous. And no one's held accountable at all for this. Matter of fact, uh, some several of the executives, after they announced that they're closing down the, the nuclear power projects, gave, gave themselves a bonus. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, some of them retired. I don't know if it was forced or not, but they retired with amazing pensions. And, that, I mean, that's what I was saying a minute ago. They are still taking from us. They are, they are whining and saying, if you change the law, we'll go bankrupt, while they are paying more money to their stockholders. It, it, it's, it's complete and utter chaos. And to have two legislative sessions to shut this down, and, you know, Governor McMaster took $115,000 from the lobbyists, or, well, not from the lobbyists, pardon me, 115000 from the executives at SCANA. And then he did it in the same month that he found out about all this stuff and, and refuses to give it back. You know, I, I, I just, we got to have new leadership in Columbia. Well, my question is, is if uh, SCANA does go bankrupt, what happens to those of us reliant upon their electricity? Is it all going to be shut off? Is there going to be an emergency no. where someone forces the company to remain open? What happens? No, SCANA's not going to go bankrupt, first of all. And second of all, there are a number of suitors who want to buy SCANA. Um, no, our electricity is not going off. That not There's not a person who can hear my voice who should be worried about not having electricity in South Carolina. This is all theatrics. Yeah. <laughs> they want more of our money. <laughs> Man, the politics here is just crazy, crazy, crazy. You know, um, one of the other things that was a big thing is the uh, gas tax. And I was up there with the was it Freedom Works or Americans for Prosperity when we had our protest mm-hmm. about raising the gas tax? And it was supposed to go to road repair, but it never did. Right. It goes all into a slush fund, and our roads are not repaired. And at one point, we were supposed to have the DOT board was supposed to be under the purview of the governor. 
Oh, it is in a way, but it has to be approved by whom? By Hugh Leatherman the and Senate. his gang. And the people right. they put on that board answer more to him than they would answer to the governor. And they put so many layers in between. Instead of making it simpler, they've made it worse. And still nothing's getting done over here. Look, two of the biggest issues in South Carolina are education and roads, and the governor is not in charge of those. The legislature is. I mean, I think there's seven different commissioners, at least, on the Department of Transportation board. And until last session, those were appointed and, and elected and chosen by the legislature, not the governor. The governor got to appoint the director, but didn't actually. The director reported to the board. I mean, it's ridiculous. And to the least, Henry McMaster could have done. And it was very interesting last night. I heard um, one of his one of his uh, his people trying to take it take credit for both vetoing the gas tax and actually getting reform out of the the bill that they vetoed. I mean, it, it was it was quite a quite a thing of art to hear them try to do that. Bottom line is this. We had enough money before the gas tax was raised. It's not going to the red still. And if the, the legislature of South Carolina would first pay for safety, education, and infrastructure, we'd have billions left over. There's no need to ask the people of South Carolina for, mo- for more money. It's part of the reason that I've said that without doing a thing, we could cut the income tax, the most egregious tax, in, by 2% tomorrow. But if we cut spending, we could cut more. We could cut even further. So, you know, no, we, we have got to have reform there. And um, and in the meantime, we have to make sure that those corrupt, good old boys stop self-dealing. And that starts with my number one priority, as I said before. Number one priority, change the people who are up there with ethics reform. You know, I got some interesting mailers in the – oh, I was going to follow through with – I got some interesting uh, mailers in the mail from Warren, and he's been going after you uh, with some very strange claims that you voted for a Democrat or you you donated money to a Democrat. He's made a lot of strange claims against you. You know, John Warren um, has popped up in the last probably three or four months. Um, he's not who he says he is, and he doesn't have a record. He is – we do know that um, – that part of his bankrolling for his campaign came from this liberal PAC boss, Frank Schuler, who also has created a Democratic PAC that supports, the, like Dianne Feinstein and the Democrats around the, the senatorial Democrats around the nation. Um, he says in his debate that he couldn't get a job, but somehow somebody out of state gave him, you know, a, a tranche of money, I think it was a million dollars, to get a business started. And we don't know who they are, and we don't know who his business partners are, and we don't know how he's funding this campaign other than through his business, but he won't release who they are. And this this gentleman has written, he's claiming, a $3 million check to acquire the governor's mansion. That terrifies me um, because, you know, the governor's mansion is not something we acquire. That's 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 – that's something that the supporters around the state of South Carolina have asked, actually asked me to go serve to do. And um, I, I think, you know, I tell you what, here's, here's another interesting thing, because it is the season, right? Henry McMaster put mm-hmm. out a commercial about me that um, even the liberal media wouldn't take his money to put it up. Now, some did. Some did. 
there were a lot of broadcast television stations who would not put up the, the um, commercial or when they found out how false it was, took it down. When the liberal media has more integrity than the governor of South Carolina, you know we need a new governor. I mean, it is, it is the false attacks are phenomenal. But it's how we know we're winning, right? It's like the Democratic National um, Governors Association has been hitting me pretty hard because they do not want to run against me in November. <laughs> well, you got a debate tonight. All five of you will be on stage together, correct? Yes, it's the last one before we vote or before next Tuesday. Well, I know some of my members of my Tea Party have already cast their vote for you. <laughs> so, well, I'm really glad you came to, to be with us. Support. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Curtis. I've, I've enjoyed being with you. Yes, um, Curtis. Is the Mexican gang MS-13 the problem in your state? And and what's your position on them and sanctuary cities? So, Curtis, when I was the Secretary of Labor for Governor Haley. In the first six months of being there, we actually banned sanctuary cities, put into place an enforcement program that stopped people from getting our jobs before the employers could hire them. And the fellow that I've asked to be my lieutenant governor has deported more illegal immigrants in in the history of South Carolina. When he arrests people, he runs them through the system, and if they are illegal, he immediately um, identifies them, sends them to ICE and and deports. I chose Walt Wilkins to help me as a partner because he has taken on MS-13. He's taken on the Bloods and the Crips, and gang violence is on the rise, Um, not only in our state but all over the nation. So um, we've got, you know, we've got a wonderful partnership and a wonderful conservative ticket to take on just that. You know, our governor likes to talk about how he's trying to ban sanctuary cities. Well, we don't have any in South Carolina because we did that already. One of the six states that has it has that ban. Yeah, now, uh, I'm trying to remember, did we pass in South Carolina, because I know this was put as legislation, where if some official, whether they are a law enforcement or elected official, blocks uh, enforcing the law with illegals, and illegals should cause harm, that that individual can be held criminally and personally responsible. Did we pass that here? I'm trying to remember. No, I know Texas no, did it. We have, we have not passed that here. Um, but here's the thing about it. If you talk to all the local law enforcement officers, the law enforcement would no more protect the rights of a sanctuary city um, citizen than the man in the moon. And if they did, they'd get fired. So, I mean, the government doesn't need to, to pile on there because that just, that is, uh, I mean, I wouldn't mind cracking down harder. I mean, the more the better. But in South Carolina, um and we just have not had a situation where law enforcement has been soft. They've been very, very hard on illegal immigration in sanctuary cities. And I, I think it's why we don't have them. All right. Now, I, one more question before you go, because I know you have to practice for the debate tonight. Uh, we had the incident in Charleston with the shooting at the church, and that was because there was some sort of a miscommunication between the state and the FBI. Uh, would you be going in there just to make sure that there were no loopholes, no more mistakes like this? You know, I am a I am a staunch defender of the Second Amendment, but the problem there was that we didn't enforce the laws, or the government didn't enforce the laws that were on the books, and that that's the that's the important part of making sure that we have a governor who actually understands what the law is, has worked with it, and seen it in action. 
you know, we don't have that. I will be the only governor, certainly running, but maybe in, certainly in my lifetime, because I actually run an, run an executive branch agency, more than one. And I understand the importance of enforcing the laws that are on the books. That was a situation where the government and the bureaucrats got lazy and didn't do what they were required to do under the law. We don't need more laws. We need to enforce the ones we have. Well, Catherine, it has been a pleasure having you, and I look forward to seeing you in the governor's mansion, and I will trot in front of you and and model my gown. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait to get a picture with you. It it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for for allowing me to to be um, with you and um, call 10 of your friends and have them call 10 of your friends because we're going to need every vote we can get. Um, You know, we're running against a 30-year politician with all the name ID he can buy, and um, and we can't let him, you know, take care of the future of South Carolina because he'll be here for a decade, and it'll be good old boy central. Well, thank you, Catherine Templeton. Check out her website, CatherineTempleton.com. Good luck and God bless, Catherine. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Oh, man, what a pleasure. She is such a wonderful, wonderful lady, and I do hope that she does win. And she is rushing off to practice for the debate tonight, which will be on TV. And I think it's going to be also up on YouTube if anyone wanted to watch it. Um, I want to welcome our next guest returning to us is Bobby Lawrence. Good afternoon, Bobby. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How, how, are, things, how are things down your way? Ah, just ducky. We've got our... Uh, primary coming up next week next tuesday and i want to remind people that there are primaries in eight states including new jersey and california so if you're in a primary state today get out there and vote vote like a democrat (laughs) vote often (laughs) yes vote vote, Um, vote often vote early and vote often (laughs) (laughs) well i was listening to what she was talking about there i was listening a little bit to what she was talking about there was she talking about parkland and uh you know, some of the things no, that the government dropped the ball on? No, this was the church in Charleston where the guy walked oh, in. Okay. Uh, and our state senator Pickney was the pastor there, and he was murdered with uh, uh, several other individuals there um, about two years ago now. And, yeah, there was a, the ball was dropped between the uh, the law enforcement agencies, the state government, and the federal government. And uh, when she gets in there, she's got an excellent uh, lieutenant governor on the ticket, and we'll see the laws tighten up. We'll see the ones that are in place being enforced, which is a good thing. That's what we need. But, uh, Bobby, you have still the protectyourvoteusa.org website, and Connecticut went and joined this compact. How is this looking? Are we going to lose the Electoral College? Well, the left is working hard. The left is working hard to undermine the Electoral College, to undermine our republic. That's that's what they're doing. I mean, they, they started out last year, you know, as some of the listeners, I'll just do a brief synopsis of where we were last year when I discovered this. It was a little more over a year ago. I think it was about 18 months ago when I discovered this. And at that time, they had 165 Electoral votes that were bound to the popular vote. That's where the states give up their sovereignty to control their electors. And they give it over to whoever the popular vote winner. The last election would have been Hillary Clinton. So 165, it was 11 states, 
had done that, and they were at 165. So we were able to stop them last year. And this year, what they did was they took the states that they did well in that we weren't able when we were able to stop them, but it was a fight. It was truly a fight. And the two states that we fought super hard in was New Mexico and the state of Connecticut. So what they did was they focused heavily, a lot of money, a lot of resources, and, of course, money buys lobbyists. And they, they've spent a lot of money on lobbyists uh, in Connecticut, and they were able to get it passed. Now, believe it or not, two Republicans voted for it in the, in the Senate, in the Connecticut Senate, the state Senate, so they were the two votes that made the difference. It was two Republicans. And it, now they're at 172. 172. They have 172 delegates. Yep. Yep. They have 172 delegates now, electoral votes that are bound to the outcome of the popular vote. Now, the one thing that saved us from the 2016 election was that the compact which is an agreement between the states. The compact does not become actionable until they reach 270, 270 delegates of member states. So they need, they need enough states to join the compact that have at least 270 cumulative between them. And then it becomes active. Then the states can join together and they can activate this compact. And you know what a compact is, just for the listeners, a compact is a simple contract between the states. Like your driver's license, the reciprocity agreement for driver's license, so your driver's license works in all 50 states, that's a compact. You know, the very first compact that we entered into, country, as 13 individual sovereigns, the very first compact was called the Constitution of the United States. And that was the very first compact. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very dangerous thing that's coming down the pike. And the reason I say it's dangerous is because of the ignorance. Now, ignorance is not a bad thing. Stupidity you can't fix, okay? But ignorance is a choice almost. And it's, the reason we're in such danger of losing our republic is because of the ignorance of uh, um, I should say a, a sizable number of Republicans that do not understand the difference between a democracy and what a representative republic is. And they're easily swayed by, by complicated arguments. And the, 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 the left, the left wing, the globalists, the extremists, they are using complicated theories confuse these lawmakers at the state level and to sway them to believe that it's it's something that's really good for people and one of the biggest challenges i have is educating them about history and what the dangers are of a pure democracy because that's what it changes the election for president too is a pure democracy it changes us from a republic to a democracy seeing a democracy the, the president would be a representative of the people. The way it is under a constitutional republic is the president is supposed to be the representative of the states, and the states retain their sovereignty. Well, under a democracy, the states give up their sovereignty to the 
to the powerful federal government, the president. And, and of course, the dangers of that would be California and New York would make the decision about who our president is. Now, can these compacts be withdrawn? Yes, they can. It's a simple, it's a simple, it's a, the document that they're passing, the legislation that they're passing is only about three pages long. And you, if you read it, it's very simple. It, what it states is that the states are joining the compact and they give up the control of their electoral delegates to the national popular vote winner. Now that's, that's you add all the popular votes up. You take all the states and whoever wins the popular vote, which which is a, an accumulation of all the popular votes, the individual votes. That's who becomes the president, and it allows. This is how much power the states are giving away. It allows the the national popular vote winner, which would have been Hillary Clinton. It allows them to come into that state and dismiss or fire or discharge, whichever word you want to do, the delegate that was elected by that voting district and replace that delegate that was duly elected by that voting district with someone of their choosing. So Hillary would have been able to discount the voters of that district and replace that delegate that's been elected by the people of that district with someone that they choose. And it could have been anyone, anybody. They don't even have to live in the state. Wow. Now, how do they go about withdrawing then? Do you then go into the states that have already passed it and then work hard to get them to withdraw? Yes, the states that the states that have already passed it, we're actually trying to snipe one state away from them. Um, we're going to be working. I don't want to give the name out yet because that'll clue the the opposition in, but we're actually looking at one state that they had, and we think we might be able to flip that next session. So that wouldn't come up until next year, but we think we may be able to flip that state and get it rescinded. Now, a lot of that's going to have to do with how the governor's race turns out, and right now we're looking very good for our governor to turn that seat. So for the governor in that state, and I, 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 I want to tell you, but I won't tell you on the air. Um, just because it's going to clue clue off our uh, it's going to clue our um, competition opposition. into that or op- opposition here yeah, opposition it's going to clue them in. Thank you, thank you, CS. So um, you know, but that's the simple way to do it is to just do a rescind a simple one page document where they repeal that, and it can just be one sentence, one page. We repeal Act blah blah blah, the National Popular Vote Movement, whatever the Act number is. And and then they could pass it. I mean, it's very simple. It's actually it's it's actually easier to repeal it than it is to enact it. The challenge we're having with getting the legislators to understand this is that it's not going to become an issue for them until their voters are disenfranchised, and it's going to affect the voters that are disenfranchised when they do get it done. If we're just imagine if a republic a Republican won the national popular vote, but the Democrat won the Electoral College. That means that the Republican could disenfranchise every single voter in California, 
New York, Illinois, Maryland, Maine, Connecticut. It could just totally wipe them out. It doesn't matter how they voted. Even though the majority of that state voted for the Democrat. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. And, you know, it's like I share with the legislators. The compact and the people that are pushing it, which is George Soros and John Coza, they're, they're putting a false narrative out there. They're trying to fix something that has only ever happened five times in U.S. history. Every other time we've had a presidential election, it's been in line with the Electoral College, the popular vote. So to, bring, to drive it home real hard, if you look at the number of counties, each state is made up of counties. President Trump won over 3,000 counties. Hillary Clinton won somewhere around 60, 65 counties. So the popular vote, those 65 counties could override 3,000 other counties. Now, the danger in that is that if you look at the history and you look back through what they call nation cities or state cities, like Rome, Rome was a city that became a nation unto itself. And Rome, the city of Rome, would go out and conquer new lands and then subjugate those people to fund the opulence and the laziness within the city walls. And eventually they ran out of places to conquer and people's money to take. Well, as happens, it just happens in history over and over and over. The biggest one is the Roman Empire and the reason that it fell. And you know, the structure of what they did and the actual actions that took place, that's exactly what happened. And in America, you know, the states would be giving up their sovereignty to live their own lifestyle. So, in instance, for rural Pennsylvania, very pro-Second Amendment, very much uh, pro-life, you know, Christian, uh, Jewish Orthodoxy, and that's we have certain beliefs. And this big cities of like Philadelphia and Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, they don't live the same lifestyle as the mass as the masses do in the rural areas. So that would give those big cities the ability to overrule the rural areas and subjugate them for taxes. You know, like for instance, um, school taxes. The big cities could tax regional areas for school taxes. Now, that happens in in state-by-state areas, okay? Different states are set up differently. But um, if it happened across the country, that means that California and New York could tax folks in South Carolina, North Carolina, and Florida to pay for whatever new and great idea they think makes sense through the federal pocketbook because they would have control of the presidency through a, through a popular vote. Well, now it, it is very scary and I'm glad to see that you're working to overturn at least one of the compacts to, to try to level the playing field. Uh, can we have maybe our legislator, our federal legislature put enact a law that would mandate that, 
states can allocate either by the actual percentage of voters. So if you had, say, for example, 65 percent voted for Trump and 35 percent voted for Hillary, that's how your delegates are done. Or you can say well, that, that's all, yeah, all that's, of the state. Yeah, yeah. But you see, that would take a changing of the Constitution. See, this compact, the undermining of this electoral college, is working within the confines of the Constitution. Under Article 2, Section 1, Paragraph 2, Line 1, changed the right specifically to allocate or allot their delegates as the legislatures determine. They see fit, yeah. Yes. So, and that's been ruled on three times. Excuse me. That's been ruled on by the Supreme Court three times in history that the state retained the right to assign or allocate their delegates as the legislatures now, the latest one was Bush v. Gore in 2000. Now, a lot of folks think that that um, Al Gore sued George Bush, but it's not really what happened. Al Gore sued the state of Florida because Florida was a winner-take-all state, and Al Gore wanted a proportional allotment of the delegates, and he sued them. And the Supreme Court said, no, no. So it's a state sovereignty issue. Florida has the right to determine. We're losing Bobby. Sounds like we're losing Bobby there. Hey, um, um, am I still there? Uh, yeah, you're. Is that a little better? Out. Um, yeah, but okay. we're down to our last two minutes, Bobby. Down to our last two minutes on the show. This show is going so fast. I wish we had more time with you, uh, but we have to have you come back uh, later on. Uh, after the primaries and see what ha- where we stand and how you are with the fight. And your website is protectyourvoteusa.org. Bobby, uh, give me a text or call me a little bit later on and uh, let me know what's going on, okay? Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. Hey, right, appreciate Bobby it. Bobby uh, uh, Yeah, we have no closing music because I don't know what happened with- I had Dell working on my computer the other day, and I don't know if he yeah. changed some settings in my soundboard, so I have to take a look at that. But we're going to be back here on Friday with Adam Cochran. I believe he has a new book out. I've got to double check. And Buddy Brown, who happens to be a musician with some great music, some patriotic stuff. Um, then All next right. we're going to have Dave Bray. Dave Bray will be joining us. Um, and we got some great guests. Uh, but that's all I have for you guys today. So we'll see you uh Come on Friday. I want to thank everyone that joined us up on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, over on uh, where were we, Blog Talk Radio, and everywhere else. And we'll be back here on Friday, and hopefully I'll have everything up and running again. And uh, Curtis, you're going to be with us on Friday, right? That's correct. I'll be here. Well, I want to thank everyone that was up in the chat room for participating, and we had great guests today, and of course, I hope everyone enjoyed it. So until then, I will say good night and God bless, and we'll see you on Friday.